As a journalist, I could go out and talk to all these people, but it was the act of having to write it down. I didn't learn from the listening. I learned from the writing. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Tom Stewart, who's had a far-ranging career immersed in information and ideas. After his early career in publishing, he became a journalist for Forbes magazine, leading to his breakthrough book on intellectual capital in 1997. He went on to become editor of Harvard Business Review for six years and chief marketing officer of consultancy Buzenco, and is now the chief knowledge officer of advisory network Achieve Next. His most recent book is Wu Wow Win on service design. You can find Tom on Twitter at Thomas A. Stewart and information on his latest book at wowwin.com. In this episode, Tom shares insights on the excitement of ideas, building overarching theories, abductive reasoning, applying Marie Kondo to information, getting off the hamster wheel, and much more. Keep listening for Tom's always entertaining insights on how to be a true ideas person in a world of overwhelm. Tom, it's an absolute delight to have you on the Thriving on Overload uh, podcast. Ross, it has been far too long since we've seen each other face-to-face, although we're now seeing each other face-to-face, so pixel-to-pixel, I guess. Uh, It's wonderful to be here with you. Absolutely. So, Tom, you have thrived on information throughout your entire life, and starting from, I think, you know, I first knew you as a journalist, and obviously you've, you've... taken that far beyond that, obviously editor at uh, Harvard Business Review and uh, many other roles. Perhaps as a starting point is thinking, what is it that helps you frame what information is useful to you, is relevant to you, is is something you should be paying attention to? What, what helps you, what is the bigger frame or the purpose or the objectives or the expertise you're trying to develop which helps you frame that? I remember seeing once this then CEO, Alan, not Alan Houghton, what was the, which Houghton? I can't remember which Houghton it was, Info, Information Overload, who was the CEO of Corning. Uh, I was interviewing him at Fortune. It was one of the first CEO interviews I had at Fortune. And I remember him sitting down at the interview and he had a piece of paper on his uh, at his right hand and he wrote down three or four words on that piece of paper. And those were... I realized later the three or four messages he wanted to work into whatever answers he was giving to my questions. So I had a bunch of questions to ask. He had a bunch of themes he wanted to make sure uh, were woven into, into that 
answer. And I realized this was good media training on his part. But I also recognized later when I read the work of John Cotter, the now emeritus Harvard professor, who wrote a wonderful book on the general called The General Managers. And, and this was a sort of an uh, he shadowed a bunch of general managers and found what they did. And he found that each of those successful general managers had three or four um, lodestars, three or four issues, three or four things, like the things that Houghton had written down, um, that um, uh, Jamie, Jamie Houghton, there it is, uh, that, like the things that Jamie Houghton had written down, that they, that they attached their actions to. I'm trying to drive the organization forward on these three areas. And so whatever you bring to me or whatever I read in the newspaper or whatever my customer says to me, whatever it is, I try to hang these things like baubles on a Christmas tree around these themes. Now, um, I don't know that I'm that way. Uh, personally, I, I, when I got into the business of business, I'd, before I went to Fortune, I had been uh, nearly 20 years in the book publishing business. And I was an editor, I was commissioning books, uh, and I would, if you asked me what kind of books I was the best editor for, I'm not sure I would have understood the question. I was a magpie. I, I like this, I like this, I like the other thing. A little nagging voice kept telling me, um, you really ought to focus. You really ought to, uh, you know, even though a good publisher's list is eclectic and has, and has many different books of different types on it, there would be some value if you were an expert in jazz, an expert in, you know, avant-garde fiction, an expert in something so that your expertise was a magnet that drew things to you. And and also, I guess that the magnetic energy went to and, you know, to and from, sort of like uh, uh, where you were part of that part of that community. I never really did it. Uh, I never really did it in the book business, uh, although willy nilly, some sort of things kind of happen. But what I did discover there was that I really was very good at um, getting excited by ideas. And that sort of excitement at the idea, a cat with a new toy, um, a, a tigger just swarming with energy around something, that excitement with an idea, a new idea, has, is what has sort of framed me uh, or, or what has inspired me. Now, that is like a cat with a new toy that that tends to be now i'm bored i'm going to go on to the next one now i'm bored i'm going to go on to the next one but but that's the pattern the pattern is 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 there an idea that has gotten me excited that makes me that gives me some new way of interpreting all the stuff that i'm seeing it's some new christmas tree on which to hang uh, the the things I see, and those ideas have changed over time. But but it's that desire to see to make sense of things. It's that desire to say, ah yes, that's true because of this larger thing that is true, and you can attach it to that idea, and that has helped me. Uh, I'm not sure it's helped me decide what's irrelevant, but it's helped me decide what I'm going to focus my energy on. 
so so in a way you're starting from the excitement if this excite if it excites you then you're that's uh, that's where you go and perhaps later on you can deconstruct what it is that excites you yes and and, and what's also interesting is um I guess these days we get to call it mansplaining, but I have a, um, a, a a deep drive, as I said, to try to make sense of things, to try to come up with an overarching theory. Um, this is all part of a big picture in, in which we see X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm being Australian, so you can get the, you know, say, say Z instead of Z. Um, that... Uh, I, I'm, I'm intellectually most comfortable at 39,000 feet. And so the degree to which um, I can abstract things into principles and frameworks and ideas and so on and so forth, um, that's where I'm excited. And then you, when you have a framework, you can plug things in and the, and, and the things that you plug in matter less than the framework. So, so how do you go about building these frameworks? I don't know. Um, years ago, uh, when I was first at Fortune, Fortune had had a tradition of publishing a beginning of the year article that was like the most fascinating business people of whatever year it was. And one year, um, Walter Kieschel, who was the deputy managing editor, and Marshall Loeb, who was the managing editor. I think it was Walter's idea. Walter persuaded Marshall to um, uh, do fascinating ideas instead of fascinating people. And that was for 1991, so it was 30 years ago. Um, and um, I was relatively new at Fortune, but somehow my reputation as being this idea magpie uh, had, had, had uh, you know, been established, and um, they came to me and said, would you work with Charlie Burke, who was a senior editor, and would you be the writer? And then there'll be other writers, too. So we ended up with, like, 20 short articles, and um, uh, I wrote about 10 of them. And, and, and that was actually where I first started writing about intellectual capital, uh, where somebody... Uh, with a little piece, the lead piece in that package was called Now Capital Means Brains, Not Bucks. And that got me into the whole intellectual capital area. But it was in there that um, I'm t I, I, I talked, I met a guy named Ellie Noam, um, N-O-A-M. And Ellie was a um, professor at Columbia University, went, later went on to be a telecoms regulator for the state of New York. And one of the things in this essay, I mean, in this, in this package of essays, was um, a prescient little article that I wrote called Everything That Communicates Must Converge. At the time, this was this radical idea that if you can put it in ones and zeros, all communication, you know, all media blend and they become this hyper media, this, this, this thing that we're now kind of used to. Uh, and, and I remember talking to Elliot. Elliot turned out was, was somebody I read about. We got in touch. Uh, I went up to his office to interview him, and he told me that we'd been college classmates, which neither of us had known at the time. He said, Ellie Noam said this gnomic thing to me. He said, in a, in a world of information overload, the value added is the information subtracted. It's your ability 
to do a sort of an intellectual Marie Kondo and say, this does not spark joy. I don't need this. Get rid of this. Let's not focus. It's the erosion of the of the crap and the remaining of the of the of, of whatever granite uh, is is there that is the more solid rock. That that's that's what reveals what's important. And since I'm never been particularly a detail oriented person anyway, that idea uh, resonated with me. That's great. None of these details matter. Let's just get the big picture right. You know, they, uh, that, that, that sort of uh, that, that resonated with my, with my personality. But that was really how I started thinking about that. So, so that's on the one hand, this idea, the value added seems information subtracted. And now I'm, I'm sort of thinking aloud because there's another hand. Um, as I said, I like 39,000 feet. I like reasoning from the big picture down to what this, you know, to how the big picture explains this detail. And if you go and open up one of the classic Michelin green guides, the green guide to France, the green guide to a region of France, whatever it is, you will notice that those green guides all begin with geology. They begin with, this is Tuscany, this is Provence, here is the geology. And they discuss the geology and they discuss the, ge the, the, the geography and they discuss the climate and they discuss all of these other things. And then they work from there to the history and then they work from there to go look at this chateau. It's a three-star chateau and here's this amazing journey. And, and there is something about that that... Um, that 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 appeals to me here's the big map and then you can start locating this human activity this ceo trying to do this with his company uh, or her company you can locate them on the map it has an analog and i'm just realizing this right now i have no idea if there's intellectual kinship this michelin green guide framework has an analog in the Annals historian's work. And if you take a look at the great work, for example, of Fernand Braudel, who wrote this three-volume history of capitalism and also wrote a magnificent work called The Mediterranean, The Mediterranean World in the Age of Philip II, a two-volume work. Braudel uh, is the same kind of thing. He's sort of like, let's start... Let's start. In his case, actually, he works the other way around. He says he's, he does his history of capitalism the first book is called The Structures of Everyday Life, but it's like farmers, nomads, how people actually live their ordinary lives, and then he puts businesses on top of that, and then he puts global enterprises on top of that in the sort of emergence of capitalism. But it's the same sort of thing. Let's find this foundational stuff or this superstructural stuff, depending on where you're working, and then sort of use that to explain what we see and to try to give it some sort of context. So part of the framework is obviously then, I suppose, from the fundamentals to the what's built on top of that, as you're describing the Michelin Guide. So part of, part of I think, the framework is partly it's around connections. What are the connections between the different elements? And and yeah. often visual visualizing things as a tool to be able to do that. So do you ever describe some of these frameworks or use visual things or do you map out connections or is this all inside your mind and building these lattices of the you know what the underlying uh geology and geography of the, the domain and what lies on top of that 
Well, I, I'm going to show you this, even though it won't show up in the podcast. This is how I take notes. It's indecipherable. Uh, there, there are, you know, sometimes I, I number things, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Other times I'm simply sort of randomly doing things and they get sort of, you know, Here's, here's, a, here's a more typical page where I'm actually. Try, this is these are the these are the notes of from a from a conversa- a, a, a panel discussion we had, and there's some Roman numerals in there where I think I thought I identified some themes with it, and later on today I actually have to write that up and take those four Roman numerals and turn them into prose. And we had a lively discussion, and these were the four elements things we talked about. But of course, they were this is pulling together scattered pieces. The short answer to your question is yes. I I I do. I I I've never been a visual note taker. I'm not one of these people who can draw cartoons on walls or or anything like that. But what will happen to me in the course of a conversation is that a visualization will come to me. It's very often a two by two. I have no idea why that is. Maybe it's from having spent half a dozen years in consulting. Uh, you know. Everything can be expressed as a two by two, but th- th- something like that will will come to me. The other day, I was interviewing a g- wonderful guy named Larry Inks, who's on the faculty at the business school at uh, the Ohio State University, and I was talking to Larry for my podcast, and we were talking about uh, the questions of getting back to work or reorganizing the workplace or what do you want to do uh, as you think about a, I don't want to say call it a post-COVID because we're not post-COVID, but a, but a COVID-infused world. And somehow in the course of our conversation, something that it ended up being a two by three, something came up and, 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 I, and I said, well, you know, it looks to me, I said, I picked up something from my, something I'd read in HBR about, you need to think about three kinds of, uh, and then you need to think about short term and long term. And I said, ah, three times of jobs, short term, long term, one, two, three, you've got a six box matrix. And then within that, you can start making your decisions. So, so that sort of thing uh, happens to me. And I'm not quite sure why. At one point I was, um, thinking about in the Episcopal Church, in the confession, in the right to confession, there is a thing that says, we have done those things we ought not to have done, we failed to do, we've had sins of omissions and sins of commission, and we have have not loved our, our God with all our whole hearts and our whole minds, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And, oh, that's a two by two, right? There's sins of omission and sins of commission, and the, and those two sins are not loving God and not loving our neighbor, and you can set them up as a two by two, and you could actually put that two by two up on the wall, and you could say, hmm, let's do a little self inventory if one were, you know, confessionally minded. And I'm still sort of waiting for the priest to give a sermon and say, here's a great way to, to organize your, your, your inventory of, of where you've gone wrong. You can just take it right here from the confession, put it up on a two by two, put it on a PowerPoint slide, project it against the wall, and think and repent. I don't know why it happens, it just does. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. 
I mean, I think part of this process is that when we look at this idea of thriving on overload, I think many people don't uh, aren't aware of their own processes, and that's that's part of what we're trying to do is to unpick that. And so to take that to the next step is around you talked about the sense making. So this idea of how is it? So you were talking about beginning to build these frameworks with these geologies and geographies, and out of these frameworks with or matrices, and so. What is then the process? I mean, is it getting into a state of mind? Is it a way of thinking? Is it sort of being able to get other perspectives on what you're doing? What for you is that process of being able to make sense to where, where the exciting idea becomes something which takes shape for you? When we were growing up, we th- were taught that there were two kinds of thinking, right? Deductive and inductive. And that the deductive thinking was reasoning from the theory to the specific or, or deducing from what you saw or drawing a conclusion, drawing a conclusion from the things that you saw. And the inductive was sort of building it up from the bottom. And it turns out, uh, as I think we know, but I didn't learn this until many years ago, until not too many years ago. There's this third thing, which is called abductive. And abductive thinking is, um, and in fact, what we do when we think it is we look at a bunch of stuff and we think, ah, I've got an idea. It's the process of hypothesizing. It's the process of saying, oh, maybe this means X, which you then test. It's that leap to an explanation. And it turns out that that's, I mean, that's a mystery. It's a mystery of consciousness. And it's and it's critical. If you simply sit there inductively, you will be looking at all the grains of sand and never see the beach. And if you simply look deductively, you'll see the beach and never see that fantastic starfish right at your foot. But but it's that abductive thing. I mean, there, there's some fascinating studies that were done by Damasio, I think Chris Damasio, he was a, uh, a, a neuroscientist at the University of Iowa. I think he might now be at NYU, but I'm not sure. He, he did some studies of people who had had damage to certain parts of their brain. And one of the studies that I remember from 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 one of his one of his books, the study of these people and, and, and who were given a deck of cards, and and they they and they put some galvanic sense you know some galvanic sensors on their skin to, so that they could get some sort of visceral response, and they were given this deck of cards and they were sort of supposed to turn cards until they saw something. And they were going to try to win whatever this game was. And the way this thing worked was that the card game was rigged. There was a certain pattern. And once you deduct, once you detected the pattern, you could figure out how to win the game. And they discovered that um, normal people could would go along, and after ten or so cards, they they'd get a galvanic skin response so that you know they'd get a spidey sense that something was going on something intuitive right and then they would say oh i think that this is what's going on and then they would change their behavior and they'd start winning the game that's that's that was the normal response but these people whose emotional whose whose brain was damaged in an area where emotions could t- t- take place they could go along some of them never saw the pattern at all some of them saw the pattern, but they had no galvanic skin response, so it didn't affect them anywhere else than intellectually. And, even, and those who saw the pattern could not change their behavior. 
So they would see, oh, this is what's going on. But they still played the game in a way that guaranteed that they would lose. So somewhere in there is this this thing that there's something that sparks, right? Something that sparks it. And and I've never known for me what it is. It can be, you know, I, I, I do have this ability, whatever it is, to connect A to M and Q to B and, and see, oh, these things might be related. I don't know why that is. A psychologist once told me that that she thought I had an unusual ability to see connections, sometimes connections that weren't even there, uh, between you know the different pieces that might be lying on 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 a table or or in in or, or on the blackboard in my mind. And I will just sort of say, oh well, that's connected to this, or you can you can explain how these things might be connected. And if that's the case, then you know, maybe you can connect other things to it, but I, I, I just, I just don't know the process. It's a mystery. So there, there's no conditions, uh, as in a state of mind, or what, what you're doing, or is there a particular? You know, Sometimes can- when I'm talking. Aha. Uh-huh. I- uh, uh, th- this is this is actually true. Um, when I was in high school, I was a high school debater. I was a very good one. Uh, uh, I really liked it. Everything I and, and what I learned in debate. Uh, shaped me in two ways. Number one, almost everything I write has some sort of. I'm trying to make a point. I'm trying. There's there, there may not. There's not a plot. There's an argument, and, and we're trying to get to something. So, so the idea of marshalling evidence in support of any idea just sort of is my intellectual framework. Partly because of that, uh, it also convinced me that debate is actually a very good debate as a technique. Is a really good way of exposing falsehood, but not a very good way of finding truth. That that winning an argument is not the same thing as finding truth. So I had to reframe my head as I got into college, saying, "No, wait a minute. Just because you won the argument doesn't mean you were right." Uh, and and so I had to think about that. But but it is true that the act of speaking for me is a way of connecting things and finding frameworks. Finding something to complete the sentence I just began may cause me to reach back into my memory or to something else that somebody told me, and it does this. This reminds me of a funny story. I'm not going to compare myself to Peter Drucker, but many years ago, Warren Bennis, the great um, management writer and thinker, went around and talked to people about how they learned. And he talked to various of his peers. And I don't know if you ever met Peter Drucker, but he was a journalist dream or nightmare, because with Peter Drucker, you never had to ask more than one question. You would say, Peter, how's the weather? And he would go on and he would give you this extraordinary answer. And, and it was kind of it was kind of wonderful. So Warren goes around, he's asking all kinds of people, how do you learn? How do you learn? How do you learn? How do you learn? And he goes to um, Drucker and he says, Warren, how did you learn? I mean, and he says, Peter, how did you learn? And Drucker says, in his Austrian accent, he's a Warren. He says, I, I learned by listening to myself. <laughs> and, and, and in a sense, that's that, that's, that, that is it. it it's, I found that as a journalist that I could go out and talk to all these people, but it was the act of having to write it down that were, where, where the learning took place. I didn't learn from the listening. I learned from the writing. And, and I... And, and so I think it's that. It's the act of trying to turn all this stuff into a 
simple declarative sentence or a complex sentence that generates the, the connection and the, and the framing and the learning. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm a deep believer that teaching and dialogue and conversation are, you know, a large part of how you frame things for yourselves. And to be frank, I, I, I learn by listening to myself when I'm talking to people. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, 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 like everybody else, I wanted to grow up to be a, either a, so a doctor or a scientist or something like this. And then I realized that I never felt that I learned very much in labs. I, I felt that I learned more in lectures. Um, and then the lab, but the labs might give me stuff that I could attach to what I lear learned in the lecture. My learning took place at that abstracted level. And, and it, 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 I was not very good at, at sort of looking looking at that annelid worm and 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 if, and figuring out everything that that you could figure out at that level but tell me about the annelid worm and then i can say ah yes i see it here i see it here and and that makes me ask a question you know i could then ask a quest a sharp question about it and go further but i needed some some abductive leap before i could get back down into the the, the details so so taking a just a bit of a hop to filtering. So you have, well, we all do, but particularly you have access to any number of potential sources of information. So do you have a, how do you select your sources? Do you have any structure to that in terms of time today or how you select your sources and inputs? So do you have an information routine and what does, how does that go? How is that structured? I'm intellectually most vibrant in the morning. Um, so, if I have my dream day, I pour myself a couple of cups of coffee, do some warm-up exercises on the keyboard, which is to say get rid of the, the easiest email to get rid of, and then you know dive into whatever serious project I'm working on and, and can give it a good solid couple of hours before I start petering off into distraction and, 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 a, and a lack of energy. Uh, so that's that's my 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 dream day. In reality, it works in more. It, it's more chaotic because in three days a week we have a morning team huddle that goes from eight thirty to nine o'clock, and and then there's the email and something urgent comes up and one is distracted from it. So what I've had to do is I've blocked time on my calendar that I say you know writing projects or other projects, and I you know just block. Um, and I, I, I try to, you know, create spaces where I do that. Now, even then, uh, I, I have found that when I'm working on something, um, I need that warm-up time. Um, I, when I was at Fortune and writing was my job, uh, if it was a writing week, um, Actually, this, let me backtrack on this. I remember one time I was at Fortune, and, and, and you know what would happen is you'd go out, report, 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 report. You'd read, you'd talk to people, and then you'd have the week when you were writing. And and when I was there, uh, our, our our offices, we all 
wrote from offices, which was kind of nice. And the offices had this long corridor in, inside our 1271 6th Avenue and Rockefeller Center. What, I'd be writing along and then you'd sort of hit some sort of roadblock. And you know how this works. You have to stand up. You take a walk. Uh, and apparently there's actually neuroscientific reasons for this, that, that by standing up and taking the walk, you ignite other parts of your brain that have been tied up in this so you, new, new things happen. I remember one time I'm walking counterclockwise around the um, uh, the office and I see a guy named Andy Kupfer and he's walking clockwise around the office and at the second time I passed him I said, Brighton? And he said, yep. And then we each went back to our office. So, so but, but, but when I'm actually in the middle of writing aka thinking i still need to do that that, that warm-up the metaphor i sometimes thought of is it's like a potter with a bunch of clay you got to get it working uh, and so i would sit down and and fiddle and edit i'll go over what i wrote yesterday and i'll um start rewriting it and then i once i've been doing that then i could only after i've been doing some stuff there could i begin to push it forward sort of procrastinated intellectually procrastinated and edited and polished long enough back to the coal face tom push it forward and and when that would go on you know things things would happen in 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 the process of that you know think th- you'd sort of say ah oh, I got an idea. Or you'd stand up, and of course, you know, this experience too. You'd stand up and you'd leave, you know, and I would be leaving, I'd be leaving, going to the subway and say, oh, that's the idea. And so I learned, I started keep keeping, before we had cell phones, uh, little pieces of paper so that if something occurred to me, I could write it down, or sometimes I once, once or twice even wrote it down on my hand because, oh, this is the solution to that problem. So I could keep it so that it would be, um, you know, it, it, so that it wouldn't lose it like a dream uh, when I got back to the coalface the next day. Right. Yes, absolutely. So, so in terms of just what sources of information do you go to? I mean, do you have a, do you tend to go to primary sources as in particular publications or do you use social filtering or aggregators or, where do you find the information that keeps you across what's going going on in the world? Yeah, I pull on string and keep pulling. I, do, I don't rely on aggregators. I don't have, I mean, there is a, you know, Wall Street Journal and Financial Times news summaries that, that come and a couple of other things that come that I, that I look at and I, you know, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm, I'm checking, you know, a couple of newspapers regularly, but, but, but mostly when I have an idea that I'm pursuing, I will sort of see who or what I already know I can talk to about it. I'll just give you, just uh, the other day, I was having a conversation with um, Russell Klein, who is the CEO of the American Marketing Association, uh, whom I met when I was at Ohio State because he's a big Buckeye and he was a loyal alumnus and we got to know each other and we became pals a bit. And so I was talking to him about an article that I'm working on um, about the effect of, of pandemic disruptions on customer loyalty. And I was asking for his ideas. And then I said, so who else do you know? And he gave me the name of a couple of people who he thought were doing some interesting work on that. And so you know, one of my jobs today is to send them a 
reminder emails. Hey, I just sent you a note. You know, can we talk? I'm working on this. So I'll talk to them and they'll lead me to somebody else. And then I'll say, because those two are both professors, I will say, do you have any examples of stories? Because of course, one wants stories and they'll give me a story. So that's usually the, the way it was. I mean, when I was uh, uh, at, at Fortune, it would, I would tend to, consultants were always really great because they had a financial dog in the hunt. They wanted to talk to Fortune because they wanted to be quoted in Fortune because it might be worth business, right, to them. So they would always pick up the phone. They were an easy get. Yep. They would give yep. you smart ideas, smart frameworks. Of course, they had a I said, they had, a, they had a vested interest. And then I'd say, well, do you have any clients? Well, I can't talk about my clients. Well, can you talk to your clients? And can you ask them if they'd like to talk? Because I need stories. And so, you know, and I always find that if I'm getting passionate about something, what happens is there's a moment, you know, first it's a fog, then you're really talking about great stuff. And then there's a moment when I get distracted by a rabbit hole. When I know that I'm about done is when I think, ooh, there's this tiny little byway and sideway that I'm so interested in. And I'll go down and say, no, wait, Tom, back, back up. You know, that's too small. Nobody's interested in that. Uh, so, so that's when I would know I was complete uh, or as complete as journalism ever gets. Um, when, I would, when I would start going down into, you know, in, into the not from the from the cap from the arteries to the to the capillaries to the tiniest tiniest capillaries no, no, no. you know get back to the arterial flow that's 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 where you need to be it's sort of that process yeah also people people at the heart of it which, which i think is yeah that's true. classically the the great source so yeah. to to round out as a information master having <laughs> Being awash with information and synthesizing and pulling together and being able to convey these ideas. I mean, is there anything else which uh, to share in terms of insights or advice or prescriptions or proscriptions on um, how to thrive in a world awash with information? Yeah, um, when I when I first I first wrote about this phenomenon, uh, quoting a guy named Christopher Locke who called, we were talking about information overload and he called it info glut. Um, I got a note, uh, I'm not sure whether it was an email or an actual letter, a, a few days after this article that I wrote appeared from somebody whose name I've forgotten and said the solution here is that um, you need to be able to read more and read longer, that this is a physical fitness problem. It's not that information overload, it's, it's just that you are not fit enough. And he had developed, he said, a series of eye exercises that you could use because he said, the problem is you get fatigued because the muscles that move your eyeballs get tired. And I rolled my eyeballs and ignored him. Uh, and he actually sent me some floppy disks. You remember floppy disks that, that revealed, revealed these exercises. And this reminded me of something that I did when I was 12 or 13 years old. There was a woman named Evelyn Wood who uh, had something that she called dynamic reading, but it was all Evelyn Wood speed reading. And it was, it was a technique for reading a page um, by scanning rather than reading that would allow you to read you know, at a much faster pace. And this idea that the way to cope with information overload is to be the fastest hamster in the wheel um, is out there. 
and and ultimately it's self-defeating you know ultimately we're creating more terabytes of information every day and it, you're you're going to get you, you know you're you're going to get drowned by it and so i think that the, the the one piece of advice i would give is get off the wheel um is to say, is to say you can't possibly keep up and one of the, the these tools that we have the tools that create this tsunami of information coming out of complete with all the garbage the telephone poles the trucks the dirty dinner dishes that it, that it sweeps up the same tools that create that tsunami create the ability to instead of waiting for it to overwhelm you give you the ability to fish for what you need rather than you know let it overwhelm you think all right i am looking for x be a hunter not a and not not and not don't be overwhelmed uh instead use it to search rather than have it um sweep over you take control rather than be controlled yeah and that sort of means you need to know what you're trying to do absolutely you, don't, you know i mean you know if you don't know where you're going any road will take you there and you will get lost on the information superhighway to continue that metaphor prep but if you do know where you're go where you want to go or if you have an idea you know uh, this is kind of what i'm interested in i want to think about this topic then these very tools that would otherwise overwhelm you will actually allow you to get this stuff so that you can yeah i, I won't don't want to say take control because i don't think you can but at least you can have you can start shaping what you're seeing uh, and bring it to a a a, a manageable universe of relevance with and you can then start working through that to find what you need to find to do what you need to do absolutely and that's uh that's probably a good good note to end on so thank you so much for your insights tom some great stories and uh great insights from uh, everything you do so wonderful to have you on the show tom and uh look forward to catching up with you again before too long thank you ross Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.